Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lancaster Safety's Workplace Safety Podcast. My name is Sarge, and here on the WSP, we will focus on common health and safety issues found in the workplace. We'll also discuss the ins and outs of what it takes to be, as well as stay compliant with OSHA's ever-changing policies. Throughout the series, we'll also be joined by a variety of health and safety professionals from across the nation to discuss various types of health and safety standards and how they could potentially apply to your workforce. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Lancaster Safety's Workplace Safety Podcast. This is our second podcast of the um, hazardous materials segment that we're doing with Andy. He's our returning guest today. Today, we're going to be discussing spill containment versus secondary containment and why you should have both. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and thank you for coming back on the, the podcast once again. Uh, really excited to get jumping into this uh, topic. Uh, before we do, can you just give the, the listeners, um, having to be a first timers, a little bit of a you know background of who you are and what you do for Just Right Safety, please? Sure. Thanks again, Sarge, for having me back. I really appreciate um, our uh, podcast together. Uh, well, my name is Andy. Appreciate it. My name is Andy Brousseau. Um, I work for the Just Right Safety Group as the Director of Safety and Compliance. I've been in safety over 30 years. I started my career as a professional firefighter, paramedic, hazardous material instructor for a fire department uh, outside Chicago. And when I left the fire service, I went into corporate safety. Uh, and I've been in that for about 10 years. And I'm currently employed, as I said, with our Just Right Safety Group. Excellent. Excellent. Well, today we're talking about um, spill containment versus secondary containment. So uh, in my world, I've been in the safety world for a little bit now. Um, this term secondary containment isn't a common term that I, I've been used to hearing. Uh, can you please tell me a little bit more about that term and what it really means? Sure. There's a lot of confusion over this. Secondary containment means different things to different people, Sarge. Mm -hmm. So it's understandable uh, that some folks might be a little confused. The first thing you need to have is a basic understanding of what secondary containment is. Uh, then you also need to understand how your secondary containment needs are tied to specific EPA, OSHA, and IFC and NFPA regulations that might apply to your workplace. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, the EPA does not use the term secondary containment when addressing portable containers. Instead, they refer only to containment under 40 CFR 2.64175B. So there might be some confusion there. Okay. But here's the thing, neither the EPA nor OSHA or the IFC or NFPA specifies what a secondary containment system must look like. They have guidelines on spill volume that needs to be contained and what the secondary containment system must be capable of doing, but no specific de design device or product is specified by the regulations. Because both agencies recognize that each workplace will have different scenarios and needs. So let me, let me lay out a common scenario that I see all the time. So follow my story here. So your primary container fails, which mm -hmm. could be like a drum, a barrel, an IBC tote, a storage tank. Uh, you get the picture. Yeah. So the spill is heading directly toward a drain that connects with a public sewer system, for example. 
Uh, but you should be too concerned because hopefully your secondary containment stops the spill from spreading. So basically, secondary containment is any system, device, or control measure that is used to stop a discharge from leaving a specified area. The theory is that if a spill can be contained, it will not pollute the environment or cause any other types of additional harm. So, you know, there's more than a dozen EPA, you know, rules uh, and OSHA regulations that require secondary containment. Uh, and it's mentioned in several industry standards. So obviously a secondary containment system is something that you want to have not only for compliance, but as a best practice for your work site. Does that Absolutely. pretty much explain the difference there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Could you please tell me a little bit more about uh, the term spill containment? I know you hear that a lot, especially when you're dealing with um, these different entities. Could you please elaborate on that a little bit more for me? Sure. And you often hear the, the two words together, you know, spill containment and secondary containment. So spill containment, is any container holding a liquid, whether they be drums, totes, uh, and tanks are even considered what they call primary containers. So the act of stopping a spill is spill containment. Mm -hmm. When there's a spill on, uh, when there is a spill, your priority after addressing any safety issues is to stop it from spreading. So the sooner you contain a spill, the smaller the area that is affected. And that means it'll take you know, less time to clean up the spill. But the thing to remember is that spill containment is part of a spill, uh, spill re uh, response. Mm -hmm. So spill response plans often contain different types of spill containment to address different types of spills. Uh, and that might be like absorbent socks, booms, non-absorbent dikes, and even drainage sumps designed to collect that spilled liquid. For example, spill containment for a five gallon oil spill in a warehouse with no floor drains might look uh, a little different. It might just call for a few sacks and absorbent mats, but a spill containment for 30,000 gallon fuel spill heading toward a nearby river is going to take a full arsenal of booms, absorbents, sumps, and controls. I've personally been on several 30 gallon or more spills uh, in my career as a firefighter. So. I can tell you things go south very quickly. Yeah, and it, uh, I can imagine it can get away from you relatively, uh, like you said, quickly without being properly prepared. Um, how will you know when secondary containment will be needed? So second, that's a good question, Sarge. So secondary containment, first of all, it buys time, right? It's a, uh, a plan B, it's a backup plan. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but you, you have to remember this, you know, contain your containers. As I mentioned earlier, you know, drums, totes, tanks are examples of primary containers. These containers usually keep their liquid contents in check without incident. But if they contain hazardous substance, and this is a big one, hazardous substances, um, and because they can fail, the EPA and other regulatory agencies require that they have secondary containment. So you definitely have to have secondary containment if what your work site is storing is hazardous material. So the various regulatory agencies don't specify exactly what they must look like, uh, as, as I stated earlier, but they are clear in this. They're, they have to, uh, if the primary container fails, the secondary containment structure or device must be able to hold the entire volume that could spill until it could be 
cleaned up. So that means that secondary containment can be anything from spilled pallets to decks to a sloped room that allows for liquid to accumulate at one end until it can be cleaned up. Uh, it could be dikes, berms, concrete walls you know, that create a moat around the primary container. In some cases, it can even be absorbents for the smaller, smaller spills. It's up to you or your workplace to evaluate your situation and choose the best solutions for your needs. Um, you know, spill mitigation is not only important to correspond with the various regu regulations, they should also be implemented as part of a workplace housekeeping and safety protocol. Having spill control in place also helps minimize cleaning time and it also prevents slip, trip, and fall injuries. So that, that's a big one for everyone to consider, Sarge, is that, you know, I mean, you have to follow the rules and there's reason for them, but it's not just the EPA or OSHA. It just makes common business sense, right? You, you don't want to waste your, your folks' time stopping their valuable production uh, time to, to clean up a spill. So the more you're prepared and the more you have this all straightened out ahead of time, helps from a business point of view too. Absolutely, absolutely. So I know you touched upon some different um, things that you need to keep in mind. What are some of the basics that you need to know regarding secondary containment? Well, there are, there are some basic points of secondary containment that I'll cover real quickly. Okay. Your secondary containment system should be composed of materials that are chemically compatible with the liquid in your primary container. I know that seems like a no-brainer, but many times I've seen, unfortunately, uh, product leak, and it's leaking into uh, something that's catching it that is totally not for that liquid. So it's very important that it's uh, your containment system, whatever you choose, is compatible to what you're trying to stop. Mm -hmm. You know, number two, your system should be impermeable and be free of cracks or gaps. In fact, that's even mentioned specifically in the different regulations. What good does it have to have an old uh, pallet uh, uh, that's supposed to be capture, capturing the spills if it's cracked and leaking? Right? It has to be, it has to be uh, in the condition to do what it's supposed to do. Uh, you must have, be able to remove that spilled liquid without getting on the ground using drains, pumps, or vacs. So, you know, you've, you've, you've caught the leak, great, and then people go, oh my gosh, now what do we do, right? Because mm -hmm. there's still the possibility of spilling what you've captured out. So you have to have an efficient, uh, a safe method to empty those uh, containments. Another consideration is your primary containers can't sit in spilled liquid. So remember what I said about a, like a, a primary container might be a toad or 55 gallon. You can't have that sitting in the actual fluid. Uh, pallet containment units typically uh, solve this by positioning the sump underneath the grate. So whatever drips catches down in the grate. It's right. not a good idea to have uh, whatever you're capturing, you know, sit in, in it because it could be corrosive. It could eat away at the product. Oh, right. uh, so you always really want that to be above uh, if possible. Absolutely. Um, another thing, Sarge, is that you must have enough capacity. And this is what usually freaks everybody out. You know, everybody forgets their basic math, but it's really not that complicated. So you must have enough capacity to contain the spilled liquid. The federal requirement is 10% of the total volume of all the containers stored together or 10% of the largest container, which is ever as greater. So it's now it's your job to do the math, right? And I hate math, but it's, it's basically simple. And there, you know, there's plenty of stuff on the internet. 
Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example that's most often you know, cited, like when you look it up for the internet. If you're storing two 55-gallon drums, you need 55 gallons of capacity in your, in your sump to capture it. So that's 10% of all containers equals 11 gallons, or that's 10% of 110 gallons. Now that's referring to the two 55-gallon drums you have you know, sitting, sitting there in your facility or 100% of the largest, which is 55 gallons. Uh, that's the largest of the two values. But just be aware that the capacity requirements uh, can vary from state to state, uh, and you may need 110% of containment. So always check with your jurisdiction having, your local jurisdiction having authority. That's a big one. Right. Um, after that, I would say your system should prevent stormwater accumulation, or what they call run-on. That's why we use storage sheds, uh, you know, for storing things outside. Uh, covered containment units, they keep the rain, the snow out of the sump. Uh, but an uncovered outdoor system, you need to, you know, anticipate how much weather-related liquid accumulation you need to add to that overfill capacity. And that's, that's one of the things personally I've seen out in the field. Uh, customers get cited or even companies I had worked for in the past that they're trying to do the right thing. They're, they're putting this, the product out in the backyard, but the rain and the snow, you know, melts and they totally forget about it. So what happens, it, it overflows. And then the EPA comes and, you know, sees that you weren't monitoring what you were trying to do correctly. So always taking, taking that into consideration. And then lastly, uh, you can't let your secondary containment sump overflow, which is I was just talking about. It's just, it's very important. Um, if any liquid spills or leaks into your system uh, or you have it accumulating, then you need to remove it as soon as possible. Like I said, that's probably one of the most common things is people, oh yeah, we did, we're doing the right stuff or we got the pallets on secondary containment and they simply forget about the rain or, or the snow accumulation. Um, but either way, you know, whatever works for you or your, or your workplace, uh, just make sure it, it works for the above, you know, the above things I just commented on. Uh, again, the EPA doesn't specify exactly what type of secondary containment you should use. It just needs to do what it's supposed to do. So, you know, you can choose the best, best method for your facility. And some, some of those options are, are probably going to be familiar to, um, to your audience, but I'll go over them real quick because yeah. they're the basic ones. So dikes, berms, or retaining walls, weirs, booms, or other types of barriers. You know, you have curbs or drip pans. Uh, you could have spilled aversion ponds, you know, in very large uh, corporate or like farm areas, uh, sumps and collection systems. And those could be something really on the bottom of a flammable liquids cabinet, for example, sump. Um, retention ponds that are for very large, you know, uh, manufacturing facilities, for example. Sometimes you know, drive around back and you see these large ponds. You know, they're not for the guys to go fishing with. They are to actually retain uh, anything that's going to flow over. And then, you know, you can chemically test those to see if it's, if it's water and how much is chemicals leaked in. You also have, you know, culverts, gutters, or other drainage systems that might even lead into those retention ponds. And then lastly, probably most people are familiar with our absorbents. Okay. Um, so all those things together should, you know, help you with the secondary containment. Now this whole convo, this whole conversation is, you know, on containment versus secondary to containment. Can you just hit it home why it's really important that companies should have both forms of containment 
they just you know let them know exactly you know that, hey either or is not going to you know really cut it you know you need to kind of do both right right yeah and you said it right in there uh sorry you hit it right on the head there it, it's not an either or situation so even super sturdy secondary containment systems can fail and cause a spill. So the EPA, for example, requires that you be prepared for spills with appropriate spill containment, even if every container at your facility has secondary containment. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the spill plan we were talking about earlier. You know, if something does go bad, which it does, I mean, that's why first responders have a job, right? Because things go wrong. They, they just simply do. Right. Um, that's why when, when people ask if they need spill containment or, or secondary containment, you know, my answer is always yes. I always recommend secondary containment as a best practice, whether it's required or not, to stop the release of spills and to help ensure your facility is not only complying, but is an efficient, as productive as possible. Excellent. Uh, Andy, could you fill me in on what the difference between an active and a passive containment system are? So, yeah, you know, you, you might hear this a lot when people are, are running down, you know, the program that they have or, or what they might need. Uh, so there's two ways to comply with the SPCC's uh, general secondary containment requirements dealing with smaller spills. And SPCC, you'll hear a lot, and that's simply your spill prevention, control, and countermeasure. And many facilities are required by laws and basically just good business sense to have a plan ahead of time, which lists out all the things for your particular facility. So there's active and there's passive. So active is all about the people, right? It's uh, active containment means that someone must take action uh, to put the containment devices in place. The containment may be deployed uh, before uh, activity begins or in reaction to a discharge, but it requires people. So active containment measures include things like, you know, placing drain covers over the storm drains uh, before uh, you do an oil transfer. So out in your yard, when the truck comes up to refuel your facility, before anything, you know, you go and you put those mats down over the storm drains. That's, that's active, that's somebody going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's placing those same covers over a storm drain during a spill response. So let's say, Things didn't go very well with that fuel transfer in your yard. So that's the point. Same thing, it's active. Somebody's going, you know, after the fact to try to stop further damage. Um, another example would be using a spill kit in the vent of an oil spill. That's, that's active. That's somebody having to run over, find that big yellow bin, open up the cover, you know, grab in the contents. Hopefully they're there and do something with those contents. And then, you know, lastly, it'd be, an example would be like closing a gate valve prior to an oil discharge. So basically active is about people, right? So that leaves you passive and that leaves us passive. So passive is about prevention. Passive containment is something you put into place to contain spills before they happen. These devices can control the situation all by themselves and don't really need you to babysit. This is important if you have, you know, remote sites that are not regularly staffed or long periods when employees are not uh, on duty at your facility. Or, you know, frankly, like most facilities I see, people are thinking about other things so they can be walking right by something that's been dripping and dripping. So passive is really, you know, trying to prevent bad things from happening. Okay. Um, 
So Sarge, like passive containment devices can include things like containment pallets, um, berms, retaining walls, drip pans, spill diversion, retention ponds. These all just sit happily waiting for them to do their job. So for the most part, they, they're hands off. You know, and after, after saying everything we've been talking about, you may be thinking, okay, great. <laughs> I have no idea what regulations apply to our site, much less how to understand, you know, what the heck uh, they're talking about. So re remember that the regulations are concerned with the types of liquids you use and the amount of those liquids you store and how you keep them under control. Even though it's up to you, you know, the workplace to figure it out, uh, whether you need a written spill plan or just a spill kit, there are ways to get help. You know, I always recommend going right to the source, checking the EPA, OSHA, the IFC, NFPA websites for more information. And my biggest, uh, you know, you could hire an environmental consultant. Uh, my biggest thing I really like to remind people, no matter what, always, you know, check with your local jurisdictions having authority. That means calling your state fire marshal, your local fire department or, or hazmat team. Uh, but you always want to check what, what matters to you locally, wherever your work site is. And, you know, if you still have questions, I highly recommend you contact Just Right Safety Group for help. Um, there's a lot of knowledgeable folks there. They have uh, uh, great products to help you, you know, wade through all these conf sometimes confusing issues. Excellent. Well, Andy, that is another hazardous material podcast in the books. Thank you so much for all your time. Um, as you mentioned just a moment ago, if people have any further questions about the hazardous material questions they need to contact you, can you please give them your contact information one more time so they can reach out to you? Yeah, sure. My email is abruso at justright.com. And that's A-B-R-O-U-S-S-E-A-U at justright.com. Uh, and they could contact uh, or through the website, any of our company's websites. And if it's specific, you can mention my name and it'll get back to me. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you everybody else for listening. I really appreciate it. And of course, if you have any questions for us here at Lancaster Safety, you can reach us at 888-403-6026 or at LancasterSafety.com. Heck, if you type in Sergeant Safety Podcast, you can find us there on Google. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time today. And I look forward to seeing you guys later. Be safe. Thanks so much. Thank you for taking the time of listening today. If you have any further questions, please call Lancaster Safety at 888-403-6026. And we will be happy to help. Also, follow us on social media for more health and safety news and updates. We truly appreciate your time and hope you enjoyed if you'd like to keep up to date with future workplace safety podcasts, please click the subscribe button. Thank you for your time and hopefully you have a safe day.